Hello, everybody. Welcome to the panel. What's the verdict? Can impact investment humanize capitalism? This session is part of the third annual Rising Economy Conference, a conference produced by the South Island Prosperity Partnership to discuss the future of where we live and work. And impact investing is an important part of that. My name is Ryan Price, and I'm from CFAX 1070 Radio here in Victoria, where I've been covering where we live and work as a news reporter and a talk show host for a number of years. Also the president of CFAX Santa's Anonymous, a local charity focused on helping children and families here on the South Island. And for all of those reasons, I'm happy to be supporting, and CFAX is happy to be supporting, this session and the whole Rising Economy Conference as it looks into ways to make the future better for all of us here. And now it's my pleasure to introduce you to our moderator, Danica Straith is the Director of Community Learning Partnerships in the Faculty of Management at Royal Roads University. She's an associate faculty member in Royal Roads Masters in Global Leadership Program. She is also a strategic advisor for Ahsoka Canada. Danica's career has grown with a focus on social innovation and change management across Canada and internationally with organizations like Ahsoka, the McConnell Foundation, Evergreen, and the Institute for Ecological Economies. So with that all said, I'd like to turn it over to you, Danica. Thank you, Ryan. Good afternoon, everyone. It is my pleasure to be with you all today. This panel is going to explore the massive growth in ESG and impact investing as conscious investors seek ways to create benefits for society and the planet alongside financial returns. Our panel tackles the big questions How impactful is this form of investing, and does it really have the power to humanize capitalism? In a moment, I will turn things over to our speakers, but first, a quick overview of the format. Around 20 to the hour, we'll be taking questions from you all um, that we will pose to the speakers. You can submit a question at any time through the Zoom Q&A below the video. This session will be recorded, so if you would like to remain anonymous, you can um, submit your question anonymously if you prefer. To interact with attendees, you can use the Zoom or the HOVA chat. The production team will monitor the chat and fling them our way through Zoom. Um, and if you're taking having any takeaways from this uh, session that you would like to share on social media, please use the hashtag uh, rising Economy 2020. Joining me today is Dr. Basma Majerbi, an Associate Professor of Finance at the Gustavin School of Business at the University of Victoria. Her research includes international, includes international finance, ESG and impact investing, and climate-related financial risks and opportunities. Her teaching integrates sustainable finance topics into core finance courses in various programs, including the MBA in sustainable innovation. Basma is leading the development of the Vancouver Island Impact Investing Hub and is the technical advisor with the International Monetary Fund's Institute for Capacity Development and a steering committee member of the Canadian Sustainable Finance Network. She serves on the board of the South Island Prosperity Partnership and is a member of the Impact Investment Committee for UVic and Victoria Foundation. Jill Earthy is the CEO of NBC. Jill is responsible for a strategic investment fund that is worth 
hundred million to invest in triple bottom line approach to value people, planet, and profit for a more sustainable, inclusive, and prosperous future for BC. Jill has built and sold two national companies and has committed her career to mentoring entrepreneurs and growing the innovation ecosystem within Canada. Jill has been recognized for her contributions as an influential woman in business by Business in Vancouver and is one of the top 100 most powerful women in Canada, named by WXM. Michael Meehan has more than 20 years of experience in ESG finance sustainability and impact. He is a senior advisor and thought leader to funds, companies, investors, and governments around the world. He is chairman of the UK Sustainable Investment and Finance Association, which is a consortium of leading institutional investors with an assets under manage with assets under management of over 10 trillion euros and sits on advisory boards for funds in the EU, US, Canada, and Asia. Michael is also the former CEO of Global Reporting Initiative, the largest sustainability standard in the world. Previously, he has also served as vice chair for the National Capital Coalition's CEO of Carbon Works, Carbon Networks, excuse me, and is the adjunct professor of sustainable finance at the Gustafson School at the University of Victoria. Um, last but not least, we have Christy Rave. Christy is the co-founder of Scale Collaborative and is the director of partnerships and programs. She is an expert in operational transformation, diversifying revenues, and shifting to a culture of abundance within organizations that are dedicated to bringing positive social, environmental, and, cult and cultural impact in our world. Coach Christy coaches impact-driven executives on integrating financial growth through six through scaling impactful initiatives, asset acquisitions, social enterprise, partnerships, and investment. She has also been instrumental in growing an economy where people and planet are at the center through initiatives like thriving nonprofits and connect money impact. She is the board president of Thrive Impact Fund, which provides patient capital, flexible capital, and patient and flexible capital, sorry, to the innovation of nonprofits, charity, and social enterprises throughout BC. And we'll hear more about that later on. So let's begin with our panel. Welcome, everybody. An idea that has become increasingly mainstream is that investors have a key role to play in incentivizing actors to prioritize environment, social, and governance goals in addition to financial returns. Impact Investment proposes to help guide that movement in a way that can be clearly measured and articulated. Some say that it can mitigate risk. Others say it can create new value. So before we dive into the nuances here, I was hoping, Basma, that you could first tell us what is impact investment and how does it differ from other approaches to responsible investment? Um, yes, thank you very much for the uh, introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with such an amazing uh, panel of experts. Um, uh, to your point uh, about uh, uh, investors playing a role, a really important role, uh, about incentivizing actors um, to prioritize environmental, social, and governance issues, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's a there's a broad consensus now on the important role of investors. Um, investors uh, absolutely can shape uh, not only 
you know, the economy, not only because they decide what gets funded and who gets funded, but also because financial sector more generally plays a really important uh, function, which is monitoring and control after investment. So that's a really critical role. Uh, now, in terms of investing, I mean, I think we need to recognize that every investment has an impact, right? So that impact can be positive or negative, even if we don't think about it beforehand, right? And um, um, one evolution in the world of investment is the introduction, you know, the the the, 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 the responsible investment movement has grown tremendously since the launch of the UN Principle for Responsible Investing in 2006. And now we have more than $100 trillion worth of assets that are managed according to some form of responsible investing, right? So that's really good. But in practice, when you look at the different approaches that are used to manage money responsibly, you have a large spectrum, right? So, so, and, and sometimes people use terms interchangeably. So you mentioned ESG, people talk about impact investing, there's sustainable investing. And so at sometimes it's used interchangeably, but in, in practice, what this looks like really can differ tremendously. And so on the one hand, you have approaches that are a do no harm kind of approach. Like I'm going to stay away with some, from some sectors because they don't align with, align with my values or because they are they are harmful to society and then you have uh, uh, moving on uh, to to uh, along the spectrum you have this ESG integration type of investment approaches right and at the at the core of the ESG uh, uh, integration which is the largest also part of a responsible investment field is um, still a, a focus on risk and return consideration so I might be uh, looking at, uh, uh, you know, like environmental issues, or I look at how the firm manages its relationship with employees or customers or suppliers. I look at, you know, the governance and the systems of controls and and uh, how companies manage resources or what is their approach to actually climate change risk. These are all considerations that are really important and the term used is materiality, right? So they're really material for the health of the company. And as an investor, even if I'm only purely focused on risk and return, which are the two main considerations for investment so far, right? I'm going to look at these environmental, social and governance factors because they're important to mitigate risk as well as to also take they also um, I, they can enhance performance as well for companies that are well managed. And then comes impact investing, which is a kind of a little bit of a different philosophy, because in addition to risk and return consideration, we look at a third dimension, which is what is the impact on society and the planet. And the way we define impact investment, uh, uh, it's investment with the intention to generate impact uh, on society or uh, on the environment, and it's a measurable impact, right? So in addition to the return. So the two key ingredients here or characteristics are the intentionality and also the me the measure, right? And so this is really important. And for example, and it drives a lot of the investment decisions. Uh, when I uh, participate in some of the investment decisions we made at the Victoria Foundation, for example, or UVIC, uh, in the in the uh, part of the portfolio that is dedicated to impact, 
we we primarily start the starting point is you know what are our impact goals right which area we want to actually advance and so one framework for example that many impact investors use are the sustainable development goals right one example uh, at UVic, for example, invested in Raven Indigenous Capital uh, uh, Fund, and the primary reason is because you know an, an important area that UVic wanted to make an impact in uh, on is indigenous reconciliation. And so, even though there are other funds that have similar risk and return characteristics, uh, the university decided to to make that investment there because of the impact on the well-being of indigenous people through this investment, right? And so uh, th this, this is uh, really uh, different from just looking at risk and return. And, and also, uh, I mentioned $100 trillion that is managed responsibly. But when it comes to pure impact investment that really prioritizes the impact, while still looking for returns, um, it remains very, very small. So the latest data, there's uh, been a, a survey recently to size the market. It just barely uh, exceeded $1 trillion. So it still remains very small. Mm. Thank you, Bajma. That's very helpful. So according to Harvard Review, one of Impact Investing's leading champion, Sir Ronald Cohen, believes that impact investing could be the revolution that will save capitalism and solve many of the world's greatest problems. Michael, let's turn to you. What do you think about this? No disrespect to uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, but I don't like that statement at all. As an investor, we don't want revolution. We want rapid evolution. And I think that is what ESG finance in general represents to uh, traditional finance as our analytical tools get better, as we promote transparency. Um, we're really just identifying risks and opportunities that traditional finance does not address. That's really it. Mm -hmm. So whether you call it, um, you know, sustainable investment, responsible investment, it, it really doesn't matter. It's just better investment because you have much more visibility on the risks that you're going to face. Um, I really don't believe there's any such thing as sustainable business or, or, or sustainable finance. There's just business and finance that can improve. And this is one of the ways that we improve it. Um, the other thing I don't like about that quote is that we're not out to solve anything, right? We're out ESG finance was designed and is implemented to address risks again risks that traditional finance does not address and that to every investor simply is risk and opportunity but mostly risk um, that we need to know about so i'm not out to solve problems i don't think esg finance is out to revolutionize anything this is just a form of rapid evolution um, that just makes the finance world much more effective great that that's great and definitely built off of Basma's point. What about you, Christy? How do you react to that statement? Uh, I, I enjoy both uh, Michael's comment and the question. Thank you. So I would lean towards if we look at impact investing and, and, and we focus a bit on impact investing, which, as Basma was saying, is, is a bit farther on the continuum mm -hmm. than uh, ESG investing. And I would say there's there's enough money in this world. It's who has the money and what is the goal and the role of that money. And in order to uh, redefine what capitalism is, if that's the language we want to stay with, 
I think that there needs to be a shift and impact investing can play a role in that because it can shift how money flows. It can shift to who it flows to and it can show what is possible when you lead with impact. Great. Thank you, Christy. Jill, let's bring you in. Um, on the topic of ESGs, um, it seems like something that large companies and investment firms could have the managerial capacity to to embark upon. Um, can you comment, Jill, on how small companies might participate? Um, are the benefits worth the cost? Yeah, no, thank you. And, and thanks, thanks for having me. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think it's important to note, just as Basma was sort of indicating the difference between ESG and impact investing. And I think we, just to align the, my answer, but ESG is more of a framework, right? And, and I think impact investing is more of a strategy. And ESG came out of the public sector and I think impact investing kind of out of the private. And now there's an intersection that's happening that's really exciting. Um, I, I look at, you know, certainly the small businesses that I get to interact with, uh, you know, across this province and, and country, and a lot of them are, are doing the right things already, right? They're, they are, they are, you know, have a social purpose. They're trying to do good in this world. So in fact, that they're already embedding ESG into what they're doing. They may not have the right, the, not, maybe not the right, but they may not have you know, the same language or, or terms aligned with that. So I think there's a, an opportunity and I know there are lots of great programs, um, you know, as entrepreneurs are starting out because they don't have the same resources and a lot of their small teams are wearing multiple hats. So, so, but to just start and right size things, right? So right size so that there are just a few metrics that smaller companies, um, Need, need to look at. I serve on the board of Sustainable Development Technology Canada, and we had a project review committee meeting just this morning. And so those are, you know, seed stage companies all the way through that we're funding clean tech companies, and we are measuring for ESG um, and impact measurements for that. But it, you know, depending on the size of the company, there's a lot of recognition around the sector, the stage, um, and the resources. And so I think that's important. I think it's about having the conversation and figuring out the right the right way and there's a huge opportunity to embed that early on in companies and I think mm -hmm. that's that's exciting great good to hear about that flexibility I um, might just add to sorry Danica I think it is important to Basma mentioned I mean investors are looking at these things and and uh, you know so ensuring that values alignment is, is important to have the, the right foundation in place mm -hmm. Basma what are you seeing from your research on this yeah, I think uh, um, uh, I agree with uh, with Jill that uh, a lot of small companies are already actually at the forefront of sustainability more generally. But uh, when it comes to so recently, I was working on a research project with Alacrity, and I had some students also interview uh, small companies in BC. We also interviewed investors and uh, ESG experts. And there's a there's a big discrepancy in the language and understanding of what ESG means actually. So when when the first question we were asking in our interview, what does ESG mean to you? And uh, and and then it's not until very late in the interview that you realize that there are people actually are talking about ESG issues without calling them ESG. And so what what we notice is that first. But in addition to that, I think there's also a big knowledge gap, but also obviously for small companies, uh, there is a, a, a resource issue, of course, like sometimes these companies don't have don't have the resources to kind of collect the data, report on the data, and then, you know, analyze the data, set targets and all that. They're just busy with day-to-day -day operations. The other thing, is, though, is that um, there is, 
from the investor side, there's more, and then also larger companies, uh, there's more push towards um, data, right? ESG data. And it's it's really important for investment decisions and also to avoid all the issues around greenwashing and all that. Um, but as, as this space evolves, and so as an example, uh, the International Sustainability Standard Board uh, last month had a unanimous vote that they will actually require companies to disclose scope three emissions. And scope three emissions are emissions in the supply chain. So that is upstream and downstream supply chain. It's where, you know, even though these requirements are for larger companies, it's going to have a very significant impact on smaller companies in their supply chains, because now these companies are going to be faced, you know, like have pressure to provide some data for them. So, so smaller companies, even if they're, they're private entity right now and they don't have the same pressure in terms of reporting on this information, uh, they will actually be forced at some point to actually also, um, disclose some information. There are also companies that could be more vulnerable to some of the big risks like climate or other things. And so they they can benefit also from looking at these issues more strategically and putting a plan in place. Great. Um, Jill, maybe you could continue this conversation, sort of exciting trends in um, such as the one that Basma just mentioned around supply chain emissions and measurement there. Um, what are, what opportunities are you seeing emerging and what are you doing at, at NBC to advance this movement? Yeah, no, I mean, there's lots of exciting opportunities. In fact, almost too many, <laughs> which is amazing. But it is we're we're shifting beyond, as Basma was saying, right? Not just uh, not just emissions reduction, but really net net zero. And I think also along that supply chain, again, another example, talking to egg, egg tech company that are doing really interesting things around um, increasing efficiencies in in farming. But you know, you also have to look down the down the chain and look at okay, but now if they're using more of X. Is that what are the what are the what are the outcomes from that too? And really getting a lot deeper um, to assess assess the impacts. And I think that's that's really exciting. And then I know at NBC, so uh, as was referenced in my introduction, so we're a brand new provincial crown corporation here in British Columbia, and the provincial government's given us $500 million uh, to invest in companies and funds that align with our impact objectives. So our mandate is people, planet, and profit. That's not new anymore, right? That, so that's exciting to me. <laughs> it's exciting that we're having this conversation. But we've taken that and we've identified four impact objectives. Um, so at their, they're broad. For more information, you can look at our website because we have priority sectors under each of them. But they are driving climate action. Uh, the second one is advancing reconciliation. And I noticed there's a, there's a question there that I'm happy to address in a moment. Um, another is elevating inclusive communities. And the fourth is around innovating for the future. And so any investment opportunity that we look at is going to have to align with at least one of those four impact objectives. But in addition to that, we're also going to be looking for ESG risks. So alongside that, we're looking for a strong connection to BC. And we're, of course, also looking at that ability to generate financial returns. I think that's in the other exciting moment in time that we or the exciting thing in this moment in time is also that impact investing. I feel like my perception in the past is that you were sacrificing financial returns 
to realize that that non-financial impact. And and I hope, and maybe it's just my own optimism in the world that I live in, but that we don't have to do that anymore, right? That that impact in investing is aligned with driving financial returns as well. Um, and so we very much are operating within that intersection as well. We want we believe that we can generate both those financial and non-financial um, benefits for British Columbians. So I can keep going, and I will we'll address questions after, I guess. Right? So. Perfect. Yeah, that's okay. great. And um, Christy, can you share a little bit more about how the nonprofit sector can participate in some of these trends? Well, I'd say the nonprofit sector has really been a leader in social and environmental and uh, cultural and governance, um, you know, for many, many, many years. It is baked in to their mandates. It's in their bylaws. It is the reason these organizations exist. Um, and, you know, they're all led by democratic, uh, transparent governance models. So it really is maybe evolving and, and how we learn from each other, because it's actually the private sector that could probably learn a lot from the nonprofit sector on that impact piece and how they drive impact and measure impact um, to really help support that continued integration of mm-hmm. impact into the private sector. Okay, great. Thank you. Michael, um, I'd love to bring you back. So what are some innovative financing financing vehicles to accelerate things like climate adaptation? Could you share a bit um, from your more global perspective uh, with this, this group? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So well, I come from the institutional side mostly and, and family office side. But um, so as far as institutional investment is concerned, you know, the number is huge, right? Forty trillion annually. One of my organizations put out last year. We monitored this every year under GSIA, um, which sounds like a huge number, right? Uh, Forty trillion in assets is a huge number, but it really depends on how you measure it. And as Basma and Jill were uh, referring to earlier on, that's really a do no harm approach. Right. Mm. So you can't really look to the institutional finance world generally, although we'll talk about a couple of examples in a second, um, for that type of innovative finance. Right. Their job is to weed out as much. So no tobacco, no firearms. Right. Or, you know, no oil and gas. Right. It's an exclusion based approach to finance. Mm -hmm. And they do that because they have 5000, 10,000 companies in a portfolio. Very, very difficult to measure impact in something that large. Um, But as you sort of move down, so that's sort of the old guard in ESG finance, and the vanguard is really in a few key areas. Number one is around technology and data acquisition, around getting better data. Better data, especially in the foundational portion of ESG. So if you're a fund or if you're a VC or an angel investor and you're using ESG ratings to make decisions on companies that you want to invest in, well, it's probably not a good thing to do because um, uh, the foundational data is all, it's very, it's not very trustworthy data. It's all voluntary data that's out there in the marketplace. So that's number one, foundational data. And there's all kinds of great innovations for people getting really, really good data on companies in ways that we could never do before. Hmm. The second one is family office. I, I do an awful lot of work in family office with family offices around the world and impact. And I have to say, some of the most interesting innovations are being funded by very, very large family offices that have, uh, I don't know if the freedom is the right word, but um, flexibility to chase more innovative models than venture capital um, has been able to do to date. So that's really interesting. And the third one is sort of a convergence of models, hybrid models that you see. So one of my carbon funds um, actually uses a bond uses a traditional 5.86% bond 
um, to be, and combines that with like a uh, revenue streaming, carbon streaming model from the mining sector that a lot of Canadian companies do in a way to be able to provide uh, vehicles for institutional finance into carbon markets that didn't actually exist before. So you're starting to see these hybrid models pop up. You're starting to see a, a real rise in family office activity. Quite mm-hmm. shocking, actually, especially traditionally where they've been. Um, and this whole notion around climate data, ESG data, and being able to get better data to investors to make better decisions um, really is changing very more rapidly now than in the last 20 years. Great. Um, Christy, what about locally? Um, you're doing some amazing work. Um, can you tell us a bit more about Thrive Impact Fund? Sure. Thank you. Um, you know, Thrive Impact Fund is uh, a completely impact first fund. It's a catalytic fund and it's really for people and invest, you know, for let's say look at the investor side, um, that really want to do good with their money in the world. And it's not, um, we, I haven't found exactly that, that same thing that you can make the exact high returns as some of these tech investment venture capital funds with 10x returns and things like that. Um, so this is really about wanting to have high impact and make steady returns. Okay. I, I absolutely agree with Jill that we can um, put impact first and have steady returns. Um, it's just the level of what those returns are. I guess mm-hmm. that would be um, investors seeking. So, you know, Thrive Impact Fund, it's place-based. It's uh, it. Really, we really thought about where, who has barriers to accessing uh, resources sometimes, and we wanted to flow money differently. So this fund is really developed for nonprofits, charities, and social enterprises, which can be a for-profit, impact-driven business. Like the impact is the reason for that business is what a social enterprise is. And it's investing um, a lot on Vancouver Island and then the Okanagan, but will support organizations across B.C., and that's really looking to ensure financing goes to people that may uh, face barriers to accessing capital, don't have access to traditional capital, and really are impact first driven in whatever that initiative or endeavor is. And so one of the tools we use that's quite innovative and, and uh, investees are really, really enjoying is a revenue based uh, model, a, a financial tool. And that really looks at uh, a shared success model. So where investees pay back a percentage of their revenues. So their payback rate is actually based on the success of their endeavor. And how we help um, just really ensure those successes is Thrive Impact Fund does real wraparound supports. And so we offer there's peer mentoring and there's all different um, types of ways that we support different investees because as they succeed, the fund succeeds, mm-hmm. and also the impact that they're having in the world succeeds. So it becomes a real win-win. Um, and so revenue-based uh, financing is new to Canada, relatively really new to Canada, but it has been used in other um, countries. And so we're really seeing um, the excitement um, with impact-driven organizations to be able to um, be supported that way um, as they access financing. Mm-hmm. So if anybody is interested in learning more about that, they can check out our website, uh, the Thrive Impact Fund uh, website as well. That's great. Thank you, Christy. So we've touched a, a bunch, actually, on measurement, but let's come back to um, this sort of idea that the economists put out in, in this year that um, suggests that the S&G part of ESG, uh, so 
um, social and governance are so notoriously difficult to measure that they should be eliminated altogether. Um, I'd like to hear from all of you what, you know, what are your reactions to this? And maybe Christy, we could start with you because you, you know, you shared with this idea, you know, that the nonprofit sector has been kind of, you know, a big force behind leading a lot of this. So maybe we'll start with that. Yeah, I would say it's important to measure what you can't measure. You don't, uh, you know, it's critical to sort of see progress where, where your baseline is and where you're headed. I think there's lots of different sectors. There's, uh, not, uh, the nonprofit sector is an example of organizations that have been having to measure their impact forever. Um, and I think when we start to consider social and or environmental, um, impact, we really have to consider them together. You can't have one without the other because people that have fewer resources tend to be impacted more by inve- uh, environmental impacts. So it's critical for us to measure those together. Thank you. Jill, how about you? Yeah, no, I would completely agree. I think because you said what, what, what you measure matters and, and that's where change is going to happen. And so just as one example, you know, I look at diversity, equity and inclusion is often um, captured within social, sometimes also within governance. Um, you know, but we look at, you know, maybe you're not doing what you should be yet. Um, but let's take a baseline. Um, and by tracking that over time, that's where change happens, right? And the accountability uh, kicks in. And so I think we absolutely need to include those. Thank you. Michael? Yeah, I mean, I, I see where The Economist is trying to go with this, right? Saying, hey, we've got to start somewhere. We keep getting mired around uh, uh, social and governance issues. But the comment's ridiculous. I, I had an article in The Economist a few years ago that said the exact opposite. So, you know, we can pick and choose what we like from The Economist. <laughs> but it's a ridiculous statement. Um, mm. ESG issues are by nature systemic. Right. You can't talk about climate change without talking about the governance of companies to be able to address it and the social um, aspects to be able to carry it out. Um, and by ignoring those things, um, you're inviting risk. You are just inviting yourself. You're leaving yourself wide open to all of the related risks that will, you know, uh, uh, damage the, the credibility and the success of your fund, your investment, your company and so on. So. I, you know, I would say to the economists, the same thing I say to my, you know, my own fund managers and so on is some pull up your socks and, and, and do the work that, that real diligence entails. And that entails the S and the G. That's why it's there. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks, Michael. Basma. I think I agree with everything here. I think, um, I see the point about the S and the G being the harder to measure, although not not so much the G, but maybe the S is a little bit difficult to measure. Uh, not like uh, how you measure carbon emission or you know GHG or other things, uh, but it's uh, you know again I'm gonna say the same thing that without a strong governance you're not going to do anything, right? You're not going to look at this risk. You're not going to put in place systems to measure. Uh, it's going to be uh, uh, impossible to do all these other things. And I, and I think things like, for example, uh, something that is really like uh, becoming mainstream now is the 
Task Force for uh, TCFD, which stands for Task Force for Climate Related Refugee Disclosure, and they have governance there as as a really important uh, part of the framework, right? The other risk of just looking at climate is, you know, whenever you have just a tunnel vision on only one thing, you're gonna miss everything else that is is gonna affect that one thing you are super laser focused on, right? So with climate, for example, yeah, I mean, things like other environmental factors even, right? Like biodiversity or other things are affecting climate and are affecting um, these higher risk levels, right? So you don't want to be just focused on one thing because things are very highly interconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you. And um, can you speak a bit more to the, the where the fragmentation lies or where the consensus lies, Fasma, um, when it comes to compliance uh, and monitoring? You mean in terms of ESG uh, considerations? Uh, ESG, I think for a long time, the big challenge both for investors and companies is the lack of like standardization and the multiple frameworks. And you often hear people talk about the alphabet soup of uh, uh, standards, frameworks, tools, and all that. And I think, uh, Michael, the other point that Michael mentioned earlier is that a lot of it is still voluntary, right? So there is no strong regulation about what you should disclose, what you should not disclose. But fortunately, I think since COP last year, um, with the announcement of the ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is now under the IFRS, uh, basically, which is the organization responsible for financial disclosure, um, there's been already significant progress in trying to kind of agree on some basics about general sustainability disclosure on the one hand, and then also the climate-related disclosure on the other hand. And so it's, I mean, if, if this uh, happens, uh, it's going to provide a lot of clarity, both for companies in terms of what they should disclose and report on to their stakeholders, but also investors will have comparability of the data as opposed to looking at so many different uh standards and so on. But I, I must say, though, and I, maybe Michael will comment on that, that we in Canada, the U.S. and majority of other countries, it's still not strongly regulated. But in Europe, for example, and other countries, there's been already uh, a lot of uh, attempts, you know, in, in, in terms of regulation of the space. So I think you know, maybe Michael can speak more to that. Uh, but it's it's improving. Great. Michael. Yeah, I mean, you could do a whole conference on this one subject for sure. But, you know, just to level set, there really isn't that many standards. Actually, there's only a few standards in the world around sustainability disclosures. Um, the rest are frameworks, and there's a difference because ESG is vast, right? It is vast. Everything that is outside the realm of traditional finance, which is actually quite narrow, is, is vast. And um, all of these frameworks do very, very different things. The confusion comes when the wrong tool is used for the job, which happens constantly, constantly. This whole thing around GRI, SASB, I call it an acronymitis because it's like an acronym for everything. If you're an investor, you, you don't know what AA things mean, right? I mean, and there's no, and you shouldn't, right? That, that's not what they're for. But using voluntarily disclosed data through, say, GRI reports, 
to be able to make investment decisions is insane. Right. That is that is not what it's for. And you're actually using completely the wrong reason. That, that is not what that's for. The reason GRI reports exist is for companies to understand and communicate their commitment and challenges to certain sustainability issues, not to make disclosures to investors. It's mm-hmm. a very, very different thing. So there's a huge problem that comes with that. And so Basma's right. There's a convergence of all of these um, uh, of, of these standards into two big pools. One is for North America under ISSB, which is a step in the right direction. I actually don't think it's going to be much of a panacea, but it'll be better. Uh, Europe is going to have its own under EFRAG, which is sort of like the IFRS for, for Europe. And that's where GRI and, and, and the bulk of sustainability reporting in the world will go. Um, great for companies. For investors, it still doesn't help you. Mm. <laughs> right? So diligence still needs to be applied. The other thing around this whole thing around compliance, there's definitely a trend in the industry, especially among the investment community, to say, well, we want things more regulated. Be careful what you wish for on mm. that, because as you regulate ESG, it goes from being a strategic issue from to a reporting or disclosure, sometimes PR issue, into a legal issue. Mm. And once it becomes a legal issue, the quality of that data is very high but the amount of disclosure is very, very low. So as an investor, what do you want? Do you want high-quality data on a very, very few items, or would you like a vast amount of data that maybe isn't quite as scrubbed as this? Mm. So that trend is definitely moving in this way, but for an investor, I want as much data as I could possibly get on a company. Mm. I don't want less. Mm. So you can see how the the uh, uh, it's an important slice of the pie, regulation, compliance, and standards, but it's not a panacea. Yeah, that's great. That's a really important perspective. Um, I am mindful of the fact that we have a bunch of questions in chat, so I want to turn to those, but I, I would like just a quick 30 seconds from each of you. What can we do um, together to advance this movement? So, of course, you know, we all work in silos all the time. What Where is the possibility to work together to really advance this work? Um, I'm looking at you, Jill, to start. Sure. I mean, I think it's always about continuing the conversations. I also, I mean, I love conferences like this, but I also really hope that these become more mainstream conversations because I still go to other finance conferences and they have an ESG panel. And it really needs to be something that's incorporated into every every conversation and topic. So I think that's something we can all champion and, and do together. Great. Christy? Um, I agree with Jill. I really like that. <laughs> um, I also, um, this is together, but individually, I think we can really put our money where our mouth is, right? And actually, as individual people, look at what your money is doing in the world, from your purchases to your investments. Um, really, as individual people, it is having impact, like Basma said right at the very beginning, whether we like to think about it or not, all in- investments have impact. And so what is your money doing in the world? Um, from your personal money to your organization or business, that's where we can start to think about that sort of supply chain and what you purchase and how you're purchasing. Um, and to really take more of that sort of portfolio approach, ask our money managers, what are you invested in? You know, and, and, and just have those internal conversations. And I think those are individual things we can do. But as a collective, if we all started doing it, it can help to shift change. Great. Thank you. Uh, Michael. Um, really just two things. Number one, engage the unengaged. 
on yes. impact and, and ESG and uh, especially around ESG finance to demystify a lot of this. And the second thing is I, I kind of feel like myself included, by the way, everybody in the ESG movement should be writing themselves out of a job, right? Yeah. We should all be out there to yeah. ESG and ESG finance shouldn't be a, a discipline, right? Mm-hmm. It should be integrated into every business, every company, right? Just as risks and opportunities and being able to communicate that in such a way um, really does break down that sort of fourth wall between ESG being specialized expertise that, you know, may or may not get you into trouble into, you know, being just another boardroom issue that you really need to address. It's mm, great. Basma. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think to achieve that, uh, uh, that purpose, uh, we need education. So me being at the university, I, I, I'm a strong believer on the role of education, whether it's for, you know, our future leaders or for the public more generally. I think, uh, we have a big role to play, uh, and collaborating with industry, of course, to learn about the challenges and the opportunities can really help in that. And, and I think, you know, as Christy mentioned, individually also people can be very mindful about where they put put their money i think in every area demand demand drives supply and so the more people demand you know responsible investment products the more we're going to see more responsible investment products that align with what they want to see and it also will will put pressure on on regulators and policymakers I think yesterday in the conference, someone mentioned that policy does not lead, usually follows. And so it's the pressure that comes from, and I totally believe in that, it's the pressure that comes from people once they are educated, they know, and they know the power that they can have that will actually trigger regulation and, uh, you know, policy changes as well. Mm. Great. Thanks. So speaking of policy, uh, we have a question here for Jill. Um, can you explain how the implementation of UNDRIP in BC and at the federal level has changed NBC's investment corp, uh, corp's investment decisions? Okay. Yeah. So, and just, I think everybody is aware, but the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is UNDRIP. And so there's a federal action plan. There is also the province um, announced an action plan earlier this year. And so I think it's a fantastic question. And I think just taking a step back, when we look at our operations at NBC as we're establishing ourselves as a new crown corporation, of course, we're embedding um, ESG elements throughout our operations. And, and so as it relates to um, incorporating UNDRIP into it, you know, we're looking at representation. So we have Indigenous team members on our on our on our team. We have them on our we have that perspective represented on our external advisory circle. So it's embedding embedding that it's co-creating alongside Indigenous communities. And then it was also really important when we look at our investment decision making that we incorporated in advancing reconciliation as one of our four impact objectives. That was really important to us. So we, and we are developing our own a reconciliation action plan that's in in progress now. So we're listening and we're learning and and we're we're co creating but that's a really important element for us great thank you um okay we've just filtering through some questions here but i'm looking at this one about b labs so there's a question around should private impact investment organizations in canada seek b core certification why or why not anybody have an opinion on that i don't know if that's a yes or no answer 
Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure either, um, but it is one tool that is out there to help support um, a business to shift its thinking into, um, you know, the impact it's having as well as the measurement around it. Great. Yeah, now there's a difference between certification hey, and a different corporate form. Now, B Labs, I'm not sure where it is in Canada, but in some countries, I've only been back in Canada for like eight months. Um, but uh, uh, in other countries, there's a different corporate form that your company can take, that your fiduciary responsibility to the company as an executive or director or board member um, has to speak to more than just financial. Right. It actually started off as something called a flexible corporation, F Corp in California, which I had a part in way, way back in the early 2000s. And now it's all over the world. And uh, so a certification is kind of like PRI. It's like a pledge. Right. As a company, I want to do this. You're sending a message with some evidence to investors, stakeholders and so on. Whereas a different corporate form, which exists in many, many countries. And I'm sorry, I don't know if it exists in Canada, um, uh, is a completely different animal and uh one of the more interesting things in in esg finance because uh, your ceo can then turn around and say revenues people planet and profit look what we just did and he's fulfilling his responsibility hmm. great uh, maybe i can add with b corp i think there's a lot of overlap with so it's like i i look at it as a framework also for companies because you can also do a self-assessment uh the b assessment tool um, as a company to, to get started and you can see the type of questions that are asked and areas of, uh, importance that you can look, uh, at, at your company from an environmental, social and governance perspective. So, so that could be helpful in terms of like looking and, and then all of these issues actually, uh, overlap with, uh, ESG frameworks or, or other types of, of standards, uh, I suppose. Um, it's just that it's not necessarily just from investors' perspective. Investors, I think investors in the investment community, the focus is really on these kind of like material issues that will affect risk and enhance, you know, value of the company. So we really look at, investors look at ESG issues that primarily have an impact on enterprise value. And, and with B Corp or others, it, or GRI even, it goes way beyond that, right? It's, it's how you also interact with all stakeholders. So it's a different mindset, I think. Great. Thank you. Um, what about for individuals who are interested in impact investment? Um, where would you suggest they go to learn more or to get involved? are quite a few different tools and it depends on what you're looking to invest. I, I think there's, you know, there's lots of different opportunities now in the, in the public markets or through your, your own uh, personal investments and RSPs, um, lots of different impact uh, investment opportunities. You have to do your research on them <laughs> for sure. Um, but then there's also in the angel investor community too, there are a number of um, like spring activator here in the province. There's, there's a scale collaborative fund too. <laughs> there are a lot of, um, impact oriented funds in this province where you mostly need to be an accredited investor. So a, a higher net worth individual, but there are other opportunities where if you're not there, you can start to put your money into opportunities that are, that are, are valuable. Some are regional and, and some are broader. Yeah. yeah if I might add, just, oh, I'm sorry, Christy, go ahead. 
I was just going to say we do have a monthly um, information session that people can attend. Um, that's always posted. It's like a half an hour. Um, and whether you invest with, you know, Thrive Impact Fund or not, if that's the right vehicle for you, it would, if you're trying to learn and just trying to think about it, um, it might give you a bit of a framework to, for thinking if you wanted to attend. So those are free. Um, I'll throw the website in here because then people can just check it out. But, yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Christy. Go ahead, Michael. The only thing I'd add is, um, you know, this doesn't have to be complex, right? And uh, um, just get with other people who are like you, mm. right? At whatever level of investment you're at. There's tons of engagement groups. There's tons of angel groups. There's tons of VC groups. Um, uh, one of my groups does this with family offices. We've got 380 family offices around the world. There's no tools for family offices, really, mm-hmm. in impact. And, and some of these family offices are, are huge. And they don't have any tools. And so the idea is get everybody in a room to be able to learn from each other and see what everybody else is doing and then work together on different things. Don't go it alone because ESG is vast. Mm. And don't try to take models from further up the food chain, right? Don't take a model from a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or a bank and try to apply that to an angel investment or a VC opportunity because the models just don't work. So get with others to figure out your best direction. And if I if I may add, actually, because this question comes all the time when there is a, a an education session about impact investing, and people are kind of like sometimes inspired and want to think about them for their own. Uh, and I get the same questions in my classes sometimes. There is there is someone mentioned once that it's a very inefficient market in the sense that you can't necessarily find the information as there is no one place where you go and find the list of impact funds, right? However, um, you know, uh, knowing what you want and, and also asking questions because a lot of asset managers offer many investment, you know, anyone who goes to their financial advisor or to their bank, you have a, like a range of options for investments, like mutual funds and all sorts of things that are suitable for the retail investors. I think asking questions and, you know, kind of asking also for data, if someone claims that they are actually offering an impact fund, they should be able to give you some metrics about what kind of impact that fund is actually achieving and not just give you data that are just here's like our return uh, past five years, right? Or this is the risk and, and this is suitable for you. So you need to ask more questions and maybe look at what's inside the fund as well and see how you feel about it, whether you feel this is a, a really good area of impact or not. Yeah, but I think that's another point you made, Basma, understanding your goals too, like really knowing what, what you're what your objectives are in investing in. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, there's some interesting platforms. Like if you're just a one person um, wanting to invest, you know, the front funders, the Wayblaze, you know, there's different platforms that you can research different companies that you might be interested in um, just to play with a bit. That's a good learning tool, you're right. Um, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Great answers. Um, so we're already at the end of our session, so I would love to hear from each of you just your final thoughts that you would like to share back with the audience. Um, where do you see this space going? Are you optimistic? Um, let's start with you, Michael. Optimistic. Uh, it's inevitable, whether you agree with ESG or not. Um you know, the better the technology gets, the better the frameworks and the tools get, 
the more investors want to know about the investments that they're making. And that includes ESG. So whether you agree or don't agree, it, it is inevitable that it happens. So am I positive? Well, not really positive or negative. It's just, like I said, it's just the rapid evolution of the finance sector that's already well underway. So Great. Um, Basma. Well, I think I'm optimistic. Uh, and also part of that is being in contact with the younger generation all the time through my classes and my teaching. I see, I see the passion in these people to make a difference in the world. And I think our education system is also changing, putting sustainability at the core of business education. And I think this shapes the mindsets of people. And we also know that it's not always about trade-offs, but it's okay also to do a trade-off. It's okay to have a fair return when you are making a big impact, right? And so I think with the younger generation, it's a completely different um, mindset, and I, I, I'm a, I am optimistic. Great. Christy? I am hopeful and inspired. I um Love that how Basman talks really around that younger generation coming up. And I think for many of us that might not be in the younger generation, you know, um, even with the diff, there were so many difficulties with COVID and I don't want to underplay that, but there was something beautiful that happened with the world being able to recognize uh, what happens when the economy just stops. And there was a long time we were told that the economy had to run a certain way mm-hmm. and that that's the way it had to be. And I actually think there's many of us that are creating tools and having conversations and working to actually redefine what the economy looks like. And I'm super hopeful. And I see impact investing as one of the tools that will help to make the change and create the world we want to live in. Great. Agree. So I'm I'm optimistic as well. I think, yes, I said just these conversations becoming more mainstream. And then I look at funds like the one – that we have now $500 million in this province, like truly aligned with that social purpose of, of planet, people, and profit. And then also the collaboration that's happening in this space, which will just help to, to elevate and, and rise all boats, which is, which is really exciting. It's exciting. I also feel the pressure too, because yeah. we have to demonstrate that it can work and uh, we're getting there, but we can only do it all together. Hmm. Well, thank you all for uh, joining us and for just all the great work that you are doing in this world. Um, thank you to SIP for bringing us all together. Uh, and I will hand it back to uh, Ben to take us from here. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you to all of our speakers for your time today. Thank you, uh, CFAX, for sponsoring this important conversation. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, RBC, and our Catalyst sponsor, Van City, for supporting Rising Economy 2022. And thank you to the attendees. We encourage you to head back to the Hoopa platform to continue the conversation. Up next at 3 p.m., we'll be hosting Critical Response, How Do We Heal Our Healthcare System? Thank you for joining us for this great session as a part of Rising Economy 2022.